When I would stay home sick from school when I was a kid, there was a couple of things that I looked forward to. One was making my own chicken noodle soup, which meant opening a Campbell's can of soup, <laughs> dumping it in a bowl and filling it up with water and dumping it in and putting it in the microwave and pressing the three button and waiting for it to be done. The other was, and maybe this will tell you something about me, watching reruns of Hogan's Heroes, right? Because that's when they're on, because I guess no one else is watching. And so uh, my early understanding of World War II was somewhat comical. <laughs> and apparently you decided to go to prison camps and to uh, set up spy rings inside prison camps. And man, weren't we Americans smart? And how did we not win the war quicker than we did? You know? If you've never seen Hogan's Heroes, then none of that makes sense to you. If you've seen it, you realize just how outlandish the show really is. Uh, but what I would also do in those days, because I was just on the couch sick, is I would end up watching the game shows that would come on. The Price is Right. Uh, and there was always also this game show called Let's Make a Deal. Do you remember the show? I think there's a new version of it now. Let's Make a Deal was always deeply disturbing to me. Uh, partly because Monty Hall is a strange guy. Partly because these poor people had to dress in these ridiculous costumes. You remember this? They came in these ridiculous costumes only to get a chance to make a deal that could really turn out poorly for them, right? If they wanted to get the thing behind door number three, it could sometimes be like two chickens, you know? Whereas behind door number two is a brand new car. Or sometimes they would give them cash or little boxes or the big boxes, and you learn to get somewhat suspicious of the really big boxes and go for the medium boxes. And I was thinking about that this week as we come to the section we're going to talk about in Joshua, Joshua chapter 21, that is the inheritance of the Levites. In some ways, many people from the outside looking in would think that these guys picked the wrong door, right? That in Monty Hall's economy of God, they picked the two chickens. In other words, because they were Levites, God says their inheritance is him. Which he means they get no land, no ownership of stuff and possession of things, They sit in the midst of this great division and dispersal of all the properties and blessings of the land and watch tribe after tribe after tribe get parcels and portions of land where they're going to build an identity and a future. And God says to the Levites, and they knew this coming in because he had said it through Moses, your inheritance will not be land, but it will be me. And from the outside looking in, it really does seem like they picked a couple of chickens behind door number three, right? After all of these battles that were fought, after the long and arduous journey out of slavery in Egypt, they get God. And let's just be honest and real for a minute, right? We like to be honest and real here at Hope. Uh, in the spiritual sense, we say, well, they got God. But let's just be human for a moment, right? Everyone else got big portions of land, right? It's like, for instance... Going to, um, to the dispersal of an estate of someone, uh, and you are someone who's going to receive something. And all of your brothers and sisters there, you're part of a big family. And uh, this person owned a whole section, uh, a whole neighborhood in Bethlehem. And one after one, your brothers and sisters get house on the row. And then it comes to you, and they say to you, you get the memory of the passed on loved one, you know? It's a lot what it must have felt like to be a Levite, I think, if we're trying to be human and not trying to be super spiritual people. It must have been like, huh, 
we get God. But my brother got this big plot of land, and my other brother got this huge section of land, and we fought in the wars too, and this is what we get. Interesting. I think as we look uh, at a big overview of this section, Joshua 21, I think we need to understand two things, right? That is that the Levites got a very specific inheritance. We need to figure out what that is. And the second thing is that they really got a strategic mission. And I think this really fleshes out their inheritance. And then at the end, we need to try to figure out what does this even mean to us several thousand years later living in Bethlehem as non-Levites? Why are we even talking about this? So it says in Joshua 21, I'll let you read this on your own. It really is this situation where the Levites come to Joshua and they say, we understand that we don't get an inheritance of land, but Moses did make a provision for us that we will have cities that we're allowed to live in. Isn't that nice? Well, we'll let you live in some of the cities in the, in, in, uh, the land. And so we want to know what those cities are. Uh, and then Joshua begins to tell them the 48 different places they can live all throughout the land of God's blessing, the land of God's choosing. And the rest of the chapter really just speaks about all those different places. So rather than read them and me mispronounce a bunch of city names, I'll leave that to you. Uh, really, there's not much... Um, exciting stuff happening in Joshua 21, except for the real plight of the Levites. So the Levites, we say, have this very specific inheritance. I've already said to you that the inheritance is God himself. And how difficult it must have been to be a Levite in this mass division of the land, understanding just what that meant. But you have to understand a little bit more exactly what's going on here. See, in the Old Covenant, and a little bit even still true in the New Covenant, what the Levites gained was actually proximity and access to God, far beyond any other people in the family of God. They could go places where other people couldn't go. They could touch things, literally, that other people couldn't touch. They could perform services that no one else in the people of God was able to perform. There was certain furniture in the tabernacle that no one could touch unless you were a Levite. There were certain offerings that no one could prepare unless you were a Levite. And certainly no one could be a priest unless you were a Levite. And therefore no one could be the high priest unless you were a priest who therefore was a Levite. So we have in this essence a very special reality of the inheritance of God that is not necessarily this, oh, well, God loves you super spiritual, far-off kind of memory of God, and he's always on your side. But this very true access and proximity to God, that they could be nearer to him than anyone else, and therefore understand him far better than anyone else. And this, as we'll see in a minute, came with a particular calling for them. What's fascinating to me about this is that even though they got no ownership of land, even though they got no um, allotment of land, they were very well cared for. They were very well cared for. God set up a whole system in the land whereby some of the prophets of the people would help to care for the Levites. God gave them 48 different cities where they could live in and also gave them pastures where their livestock could could live and could could, um, be grown and herded and cared for. And so we see in them, I think, a very real picture of what dependence upon God looks like. We talk about that a lot in spiritual talk in the church today. What does dependence upon God look like? 
And sometimes we over-spiritualize it. But I think in the Levites, we really get a picture of what's going on here. And that is that they are fully dependent upon God. They own nothing, right? They have these 48 cities that God says you can live in. But they're dependent upon the favor of other people, which is ultimately to being dependent upon the favor of God himself. And yet, we see in them very much uh, a, a necessity from God for them to be active in their own provision, right? Why else would they have livestock? Why else would they be given pastures to oversee? Why else would they have these places to dwell? They weren't just this, this nomadic people that we think about who just kind of lived in the temple and were, you know, other. They were real people like you and I. And this, I think this is a really dynamic and important picture of what dependence upon God looks like, even for us today. It's this really real sense that, yes, in fact, we are completely dependent upon God for his provision for us. Outside of him, we can't accomplish anything, and no good thing comes to us. And yet, we're not people who are just sitting around waiting for God to do something. We're active in seeking Provision. So you see this in the life of the Levites. A very specific inheritance. That is that God is their inheritance and they are going to live dependent upon him but also live actively into the overflow of his blessing to them. And out of this, I already started to talk about it a little bit, comes a very uh, strategic mission. That is because of their proximity to God, because of their deeper understanding of God, they very much become representatives of God to the people. They represent God to the people. And, and the truth of the Levites is, they, they're, they're, the numbers of activities and, and tasks and vocations that they have are, are numerous. Right? Sometimes we think of Levites and say, well, they, that's just where the high priest came from. Well, what about the thousands of others? <laughs> what did they do? They all had very active jobs that functioned not only in, in the, the, the setting up and ministry of the tabernacle and then eventually the temple uh, structure itself, but also throughout the land in representing God to the people. That wherever they were, they were meant to be active representatives, active ambassadors of God and of his law to the people. That is, they were meant to be influencing the nation for the cause of God. We see that really, truly, in the placement of these cities. You should Google it sometime. Just say the Levitical cities in Joshua. And look at a map. And you'll see 48 dots all over the land. It's this beautiful picture of the scattered Levites throughout the land so that there will not be a place in the land of God's blessing, where the people of God dwell, where there is not a representation of God and his law to the people. Actively scattered around in order to represent God to the people. So, we need to ask ourselves, what does this even matter? Why does this even matter to us now as people who live thousands of years later as people who don't live under an old, old covenant where there was a priesthood and all of these things, how do we make sense of this? 
And I think the way we make sense of it is we begin to understand just who we are as followers of Jesus. Just who Jesus has called us. Just what the New Testament says about us. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter very famously says this. Feel free to turn there if you like or, or just listen. This is what Peter says. Peter's writing to a, a diaspora, right? A, a scattering of Christians throughout the Roman Empire. And he really wants them to know that how they live is critically important because God is intentionally using their scattering in order to bring his glory to bear in the world. Uh, So this is what he says, verse um, 9. He says, but you, you scattered church, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Friends, I think a very strong case can be made to say that the function of the church is very much a Levitical function in our world today. That is that you, perhaps, are a modern-day Levite. Jesus is the high priest. He's functioning the, the main Levitical role. But the rest of the church, as his full body, is the expanse of the Levitical mission in our world. And so, therefore, there should be two things true of us, right? That is, that we have a certain inheritance, a specific inheritance. And that we have a certain mission, a very strategic mission. Jesus promises all who will follow him eternal life. And really what he promises them is possession of God, right? Anyone who comes to me comes to the Father. That is, our sole inheritance as followers of Jesus is God himself. And it's easy for us to look at the Levites amongst the distribution of the land and say, huh, they got God. Well, that's good for them. And then to think of us in our modern day as we see the world distributed as it is, and this is very difficult as Western uh, wealthy uh, people, to simply say that our inheritance is God. That is that God does not promise you financial prosperity. That is that God does not promise you vocational successes. What he does promise you is himself. And that we have to come to understand, as the Levites did, I believe, that there is no greater inheritance than the one which we've been given. To be called sons and daughters of God. Listen, We could easily make this an anti-materialism sermon, and maybe I'll make a statement about it just now. The truth is that we love stuff, right? I I use the word stuff to to mean a whole bunch of things, not just material things, but really the things we collect, right? Whether it's our need for approval, and so we collect as much approval as we can, or whether it's really physical, material stuff. We love it. We're addicted to it. Uh, We need it all the time. We love our stuff, right? 
It's why when you move, you have this great crisis where you think, how did I accumulate so much? And the answer is because you love stuff. And I love stuff. And we accumulated. I have stuff that I have moved three times and never used. But I know that one day I will need it. And so it is stationed in my garage under piles of other things. Hopefully never to be moved again, but likely never ever to be used, right? I own things that perhaps have never been opened, you know? I own books that have never been cracked, you know? They look good on the shelf. We own, 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 own. And let me, the reason why I don't want to go just strictly materialism, because I think that's, that's a dead end in some ways. The problem is bigger, right? The problem isn't just that we like TVs and cars and houses and books and things like that. The problem really is, what is it that we build our lives on? How is it that we're creating a life for ourselves? And for many of us, this is what we mean by stuff. So some people could say, well, I, I don't really have stuff. I don't have a big house. I drive older cars. I don't buy a lot of things. You know, I shop at thrift stores, whatever. And I think that's great. But really, your collection of stuff is your need for approval of other people, for the approval of other people. So you're collecting a huge circle of friends so that you can feel really important. For other people, the stuff you collect is religious stuff, right? Because what you really want is God's approval. And so you collect um, attendance at church, and you collect uh, Bible reading plans, and you collect um, the, the getting rid of all secular things and embracing of all Christian subculture things. You know, that's stuff too. For people like me, some of my stuff is just like sports, you know? Like, how much time I give to things like that. We collect all these things because we're trying to build a life of comfort, a life of pleasure, a life that means something to us, a life that really speaks to the world around us that we're important, that we matter. And this is where we come to understand the true beauty of inheriting God himself is that if you inherit the creator of everything, why would you look for stuff? (laughs) If you create the creator of you, why would you look to other people for approval? If if you create the creator of the universe, if you, excuse me, if you inherit the creator of the universe, why would you need the affirmation of anyone beyond him? Right? Yet we've over-spiritualized This reality. Peter goes on to write, listen to this. I think this is great, strong language. He says, dear friends, verse 11, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Another translation talks about the lust that we have for things and stuff. So many of us are building on the wrong foundation because we've misunderstood the inheritance that we have. One of the ways we've misunderstood it, quite frankly, is that we've believed that it's a future reality. So I'll build my life now, and then one day all my earthly stuff will go away, and then I'll have God then. Right? We've kind of bought that lie, haven't we? And yet there's no future reality to this. It's a present and forever reality. That your full inheritance is God. Here's a, here's a truth, I think, that 
it struck me really, really hard. As I, was, I think God shared it with me as I was thinking about it. I think for many of us, and, and I'm in this camp, we are more interested in what God can do for us than in God himself. We're more interested in what God might be able to provide for us than in God himself. It's why religion is so attractive to us. Because it's our ways of manipulating and using God to our own end. Either to finding protection and provision in some eternal reality. Or to feeling good about who we are moralistically. But the truth is that God himself is your inheritance. Can I tell you something? We are well cared for people, just like the Levites, aren't we not? In the same way that he gave them 48 cities to dwell in, the same way that he said to them, I'm your inheritance, and he says to us, I'm your inheritance, yet we are so well cared for. I love what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6. People who are given to worry or anxiety, which that can be me at times. Um, He says, and, and you know my hate-hate relationship with birds, right? You know, so I said hate-hate, not love-hate. It's hate-hate, right? They hate me, and I return it. Um, Jesus said about the birds, and you'll understand how I interpret this verse. might be slightly different than you. He said, hey, look at the birds. They don't go hungry. God provides for them. So how much more will your heavenly Father provide for you? And every once in a while when I hear a bird singing or flying by, I think, how much more will God care for me? How much more will he seek my blessing, my good? How much more is he for me than for the scavenging birds who get what they need, you know? The, the, the bounty of God overflows in our life. That, that we do not need to own tons of things. And I'm not saying that owning tons of things is bad in any way, shape, or form. That we do not need to seek approval, to, to seek identity, to seek any of things anywhere outside of Him because His bounty to us overflows. And friends, here's the truth of it. In the same way that we have this specific inheritance, we also have, I believe, a strategic mission. A strategic mission. In the very same way that the Levites had access to God, we, through Jesus, have access to God in ways that much of the world does not. And we have an understanding of God that much of the world and many in our spheres of influence do not. And therefore, we need to begin to understand that in the same way that the Levites were given 48 cities throughout the land, so too God has scattered us throughout the valley and really his church throughout the world so that the glory and the renown of God, the truth of the new law of God, that is the gospel of Jesus, is made known and lived in flesh and blood, in the world. So that in no place in this valley, in no place in this state, in no place in this country, in no place in this world, should there be no representation of God to the people He loves, which is the entire world. 
It's why we celebrate people like the Dresslers who go to Palestine and Megan who goes to Central Asia. And it's why we celebrate you because you go where you are and you live your life intentionally centered on the truth of the gospel so that the glory of God might be known. I love what Peter writes next in verse 12. He says, Live such good lives amongst the outsiders that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and ultimately glorify God on the day of visitation. Remember, he's writing this to a scattered church and asking them to simply engage in their everyday life intentionally in order to represent God. I love it. Peter does not cast a strategy that says, knock on ten doors this week. He does not cast a strategy that says, here are the goals you have to meet. He says, in your life, how you conduct yourself with your spouses, with your friends, with your kids, with your neighbors, with your coworkers, how you make your decisions, how you go about the things you do, how you prioritize things in your life, let it be about God being your inheritance. And what you will find is the most profound and dynamic witness there can be. Why? Because your witness is no longer about your message that you've crafted. It's no longer about the stuff that you've gathered, but it's about the God who you possess. And as the Holy Spirit breathed the truth to Peter, so he speaks it to us again, that you, friends, as New Covenant Levites, haven't just found your way to the places you are. You're in one of the proverbial 48 cities that God has chosen to place you. Not because you love the house and you could afford it. Those things are probably true. Not because you like the school district. That's great. Not because you have friends near. Those are great too. But because God intended for there to be a witness to his glory in that neighborhood. And that person's name is you. And he said, you say, well, how do I do it? And I say, well, listen to what Peter said. Live your lives in such a way Right? No one's talking about adding anything else. No one's talking about, oh, I've got to cut all these other things and be this super spiritual person that is so heavenly minded, you are no earthly good. And that is not just a trite phrase, it's quite true, friends. It means to continue engaging in your regular life intentionally as what Paul called an ambassador for Christ, sent as one with a message to bring. That very truly the way you organize your household bears witness to God. That the way you manage your money bears witness to God. That the way you go about your work week bears witness to God. That the way you rear your children bears witness to God. That the activities you participate in or don't participate in bear witness to God. And no one is talking about any form of legalism. We're talking about intentionality in the stuff you're already doing. Do you believe, church, that you're a royal priesthood? That's big language, man. The beauty of it is that you have a very specific inheritance. And it is good news. You have inherited creator God. And he loves you passionately. 
Not because of what you could be, but because of who you are. And he says to you, in the same way that you have received me, I want you to live into strategic mission where you are. To be my representatives. And you might say, well, I'm no preacher. I'm not a missionary. I don't know what to say. I don't have answers to these things. And I remind you that some of the Levites carried furniture. Right? Not all of them were the priests. You know? Some of them just were just understood the law and speaking to it and living according to the law as a representative of the law in that particular neck of the woods. You can do that. You can live into these realities. No one needs more people dressing in suits and knocking on doors. We don't need that, right? It's a failed methodology. What we need is for you to be passionate about God and for you to live a life that shows it. And what you will find is exactly what Peter tells the diaspora of Christians in the Roman Empire. That nothing will be so compelling and attractive as that. People who are no longer desperately searching for an identity in our world. This is what everyone is doing. But instead who are so secure in their inheritance of God himself, that they live according to it. I just truly believe this, church, because I've seen it happen. What you will find is the most dynamic and profound witness for Jesus that there can be. It's why we believe in what we're we're living into this this calendar year called the one-for-one initiative that is the true multiplying of self, that that there is more dynamic kingdom possibilities if you live to see one more person replicated by the end of this year rather than us hiring professionals to try to reach people. We've done the math. We know that in a handful of years, the entire world could respond to the gospel in a, multiple, in a multiplying sense. Whereas it would take thousands upon thousands of years to keep training hired hands. No, you are Levites. You live in one of the 48 cities. You have access to God. The same power, we pray this every week, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. The Spirit of God lives in you. And so you have a strategic mission. Not to hit conversion goals. Not to be wacky and do crazy things. But to live your life intentionally. Where you are. So that in every nook of this valley. There would be a representation of the glory of God. And the power and truth of the gospel. Everyone is called to make disciples. We all do it differently. Be who you are and do it intentionally. The Levites, perhaps, got what was behind door number three. But in the economy of God, what seemed like a few stray chickens was the very life that he had given. 
For so many who are so desperate to find meaning in life, God offers himself. And he offers it to you. Church, live into your calling as New Testament Levites. Fully inheriting God and engaged in strategic mission.